Today's episode requires a prologue because it's one of the most profound stories we've had the honor to tell. Our senior producer, Christine Murdoch, stumbled upon it in a friend's Instagram feed, and once she pitched it, we started digging. The more we dug, the more drawn we were to the travesty going on at an otherwise unremarkable construction site in Bethesda, Maryland. This is a true ongoing story of David versus Goliath, of a tiny 100-year-old Baptist church that, like David, stands alone in stark contrast to its neighbors, a towering apartment building to one side and a parking lot and open construction site to the other, where church elders decry that well-funded developers are desecrating the remains of their enslaved African ancestors. We advise listeners that this story contains some disturbing details that may not be suitable for all audiences. Have you ever visited a place and enjoyed its sights and sounds, but wondered about its history? What did this place look like 100 years ago? 200 years ago? Maybe even 400 years ago? What was life like before there were modern cities and urban sprawl? Take Maryland, for instance. It's home to Fort McHenry, the U.S. Naval Academy, and the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Center. Maryland is unique in that it holds almost every type of topography from coastal seashores to interior marshlands, rolling hills, and rugged mountain landscapes. And because of its vast and varied terrain, it's earned its nickname, America in Miniature. One of the original 13 colonies, Maryland is also called the Free State, although ironically for 200 years, from 1664 until 1864, slavery was legal, and the colonists and their pocketbooks depended on it. Today along River Road in Bethesda, Maryland, near where a collection of those tobacco plantations and African-American homesteads once stood, is a cemetery that some argue contained the remains of blacks who only knew America in chains, both physical and metaphorical. Moses African Cemetery, like all cemeteries, is sacred ground, but this one is buried beneath tar and gravel. Years ago, part of the cemetery was covered by a parking lot that now serves a high-rise affordable housing complex. The rest borders a controversial commercial development where dirt is being moved without pause to the possibility that there may be bones that lie among the clay. For one small church and an unrelenting parishioner, there's purpose in fighting City Hall and the well-funded real estate investors. This congregation is determined in their mission to memorialize the men, women, and children who were buried there and finally grant them a dignified place of eternal rest. It's called Forgotten, and our story starts here. From the studios of Hum Productions, I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is Impactually. Nestled into Montgomery County, Bethesda, is an affluent suburb of Washington, D.C. It's home to the National Institute of Health and the Walter Reed Hospital, among other industry giants. But drive past those wealthy residential communities, and you'll come upon a busy section of commerce that was at one time a vibrant working-class neighborhood of black farmers, quarry workers, and small business owners. 
Today, the area is known as West Bard. The old neighborhood is gone, replaced by gas stations, car dealerships, McDonald's, and Whole Foods. But a small, sturdy, white-painted church remains as one of the last pieces of physical evidence that this community ever existed. For over a century, the Macedonia Baptist Church, known as the Little Church on the Hill, has been the religious bedrock of this community. Its congregants consider themselves the unofficial custodians of the Moses African Cemetery and are fighting alongside community activists to memorialize those who were once buried in it. Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo calls Macedonia Baptist home and has for many years. Professionally, her reputation precedes her as a celebrated scholar, activist, and whistleblower. While working as a senior policy analyst for the Environmental Protection Agency, she dared to speak out against a multinational company that was suspected of causing the deaths of hundreds of South Africans mining vanadium, a vital strategic mineral. She faced backlash, retribution, gender and racial discrimination, and even death threats. Ignored by the EPA, she filed a lawsuit and won. Her experience inspired passage of the No Fear Act, which bans discrimination and retaliation in the workforce. It was the first civil rights law of the 21st century and was signed by President George W. Bush in 2002. Dr. Coleman Edebayo is also president of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition, where in that capacity she's mobilizing local community members, religious leaders, historians, and anthropologists to denounce and stop the desecration of this centuries-old African burial ground. How did you find out about this? What was the, what was the tip-off? It was quite by accident. Um, my church had just named me as the coordinator for our social justice um, um, ministry. The name of the church is Macedonia Baptist Church. It's the only black church left in Bethesda, Maryland. And uh, my first duty was to attend uh, a meeting at the um, at the Maryland Capital Parks and Planning Commission. And in the process of, of attending this meeting, uh, the director, Gwen Wright, started talking about um, the myth, um, the rumor um, that there was a black cemetery uh, in that area, but that, you know, for those of us around the table, not to worry. It was not really anything to be concerned about. There was really no indication that that there was ever such um, a site um, as a cemetery in that area. And one of the trustees of the church, um, who was sitting next to me, named Mr. Harvey Matthews, raised his hand, and he said, excuse me, Ms. Wright, that is not a myth. I grew up on River Road before we were displaced, and I used to play in the cemetery. In fact, because Bethesda was segregated, we didn't have very many places to play, and so we played hide-and-seek in the cemetery. Well, at that point, the room became became silent. And so at that point, she just sort of closed down the meeting and just said, well, you know, we'll, we'll think about what you said. What we'll do is we'll hire an archaeological team and we'll go in there and we'll make sure that everything is, you know, is copacetic. And I remember raising my hand and saying, excuse me, you are going to hire an archaeologist when there's a conflict of interest? I mean, you're trying to interest 
a buyer in this land. This institution is the last institution that that should hire anyone in terms of an independent assessment of this land. And at that point, I asked, where does the community come in? And so that's how this starts. Um, and it starts with the county trying to cover up the existence of an ancient African burial ground. Tim Bonds first heard the stories about the bones in late 1960s from construction workers who came to his father's gas station in Bethesda for a cold drink or a quick game of craps. Change was stirring along this quiet stretch of River Road, home to a century-old community founded by freed slaves and known today as Westbard. The crews were excavating the future site of a 15-story apartment and office tower across from the new Westwood Shopping Center. When they found a body, recalled Bonds, age 57, they'd blow a whistle and they'd shut the job down. It seemed to him the whistle blew pretty often. He remembers the men talking about human remains being pushed back under the dirt down a steep slope towards a storm sewer so excavation could resume more quickly. He and his pals sometimes slipped over to the site, hoping for a glimpse of something ghoulish. But they never saw anything. The Washington Post, February 23rd, 2017. Who owned the land uh, at the time of that meeting? At the time of the meeting, I believe it was, at that point, the land had been purchased by Bethesda South Storage. But the real question is, how did this this land fall into white hands. Three years after emancipation, Africans who had um, started buying up, started buying up land in this area. And there was one family named the Warren family that bought that plot of land in 1873 in the Montgomery County Parks and Planning Department with a company called the Chevy Chase Land Company colluded to displace all the black folks who had who had bought land in Bethesda, Maryland, because they wanted to build a buffer zone between themselves and the white community they were building in an area called Chevy Chase. So all the blacks were displaced, including Mr. Warren's family. And that's how the land fell into government hands and then later it fell into the hands of the self-storage company. The question of land ownership today is complicated, and to understand it, we need to take a step back, like 400 years back. In the early 17th century, Maryland's primary output was agricultural production, cotton, corn, vegetables, fruits, and grains. But in the mid-1600s, tobacco became a hot commodity. Demand was high, particularly in England, and Maryland's climate, with its hot summers and temperate winters, made it well-suited for cultivation. But tobacco was also labor-intensive. At first, the plantation owners relied on English workers, but as the British economy improved, fewer were crossing the Atlantic in search of opportunity. 
the colonists tried to enlist Native Americans, but when that failed, they turned to African labor. At first, these Africans were considered indentured servants, but over the course of the century, their legal status deteriorated until laws were passed that made them slaves for life. Trafficking of slave labor from the coast of West Africa was key to the output and financial success of the plantation. And so then you start to uh, see the establishment of tobacco plantations uh, along this road, what we call River Road in, in Bethesda, because Europeans didn't know how to grow tobacco or anything. I mean, Europe was, um, only had three months of a, of a growing season, right? So they needed people who had advanced agricultural knowledge to be successful in these kinds of what they call plantations, which really became death camps for the Africans that were kidnapped and brought to the United States. So that when people were murdered, uh, either through, you know, working, you know, from morning to night, and, or they were murdered through torture, their bodies were dumped in this area that we now call Moses African Cemetery. It's important to note here that the identities of enslaved Africans were never recorded to reflect these people as individuals. In the years before the Civil War, it was common practice for census records to be written in two schedules, one for white colonists and the other for the enslaved. The colonists were listed by name, whereas the enslaved were listed by the name of their owners or those deemed responsible for them. By this omission, the identities of the enslaved Africans were completely written out of history. And these people were not Americans. They never became Americans. These were citizens of other African countries, of other African kingdoms, the Songhai Kingdom, the Kingdom of Ghana, the, the Yoruba Kingdom. These were citizens of African kingdoms. And so they were not Americans. And so one of the features of Moses that's so incredible is that you actually have a South-South cemetery. You have Africans buried there who are not American citizens, and you have Africans who survived to see emancipation, and those became American citizens. The life of a slave was one without mercy. African families were broken and displaced regularly, Inhumane work conditions and unrealistic expectations were a regular occurrence with horrifying consequences levied on their backs. And then in 1807 came a practice that was even more horrific. So by 1807, the soil is exhausted and tobacco, they're not getting, the, the, the land is not able to produce the yields that it could early, early on. And so there's a dilemma at the same time or simultaneously you have what historians like to call the ending of the transatlantic slave trade. So these two events converge at the same time. The land is exhausted, tobacco is no longer producing its yield on River Road, and you have the reduction of Africans, African bodies, African men and women and children coming in from Africa. And so there was a problem in terms of how do these continue to have access to African bodies so that they can produce the wealth that the United States depends on. So what happens in Washington, Virginia, and Maryland is the creation of what they call the breeding industry, where Africans are now, African girls in particular are now being bought um, on the auction block as early as five, six, seven years old um, for the breeding industry. 
and they had in these in these very complex and sophisticated industries you actually have the commercialization of of pedophilia of of african girls being used and sort of sucked into this sexual pedophilia industry uh it was called priming um in in this period and the theory was that if you primed these girls at an early age that would that would induce the onset of menses quickly, which meant that they could start breeding by 10, 11 years old. And so a lot of the young girls that were forced into this industry, of course, bled out during, during childbirth. Those bodies are also in Moses' African cemetery. In 1807 and 1808, America banned the import of Africans from West Africa and the West Indies. The reason wasn't because of a moral epiphany to the humanitarian concerns of slavery, but rather because of profits and economics. Slave owners realized that imports of new slaves was negatively affecting the profits slave owners were making by selling the offspring of nearly one million slaves being held in captivity already. But this went from a per-plantation practice to an industrialized function. Breeding farms' main purpose was to produce as many slaves as possible by any means in the shortest amount of time. Where do you find your strength in all of this? In the little girls. I literally go there, and when I'm depressed or when I'm tired or I just think I can't do this for one more day, and I go there and I have a little folding chair, <laughs> and I sit there with them, and I talk to them, and I, and I ask them the same question that you just asked me. Where did you get your strength to survive um, what you went through? Because I can't imagine having my head placed in a burlap sack and taken into a room and then and then man after man after all these men violate me. I I don't know where they got the strength to survive, but what I do know is that if they could do it, I can do it. And that's the strength I get every time I leave there. Every time I leave Moses, my back is a little stronger, my head is higher. I, I'm, I'm full of energy, and I'm telling those little girls, if you could do it, I can do this. I'm not even. I'm not facing. I'm not facing any any anything like what you face. You know, look, I'm I'm educated. I've got all these people around me who are prepared to step forward, like doctors and lawyers and architects and everyone that I have in my community who are fighting with us day by day. These girls had no one. They had no one. One moment they're in the loving arms, embrace of their moms and dads, and the next minute they're on a boat fighting off rats. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Impactually. The team at Hum Productions works hard to leverage our episodes with the incredible and inspiring impact of our guests. If you want to support the show and be more in the know of what's coming up with Impactually, you're invited to support us on Patreon. Whether it's branded swag, 
earning producer-level credits, gaining access to scripts, or learning what's happening behind the scenes, you can get those and more if you go to patreon.com forward slash impactually. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually. Mary Jackson, 1912. Jeremiah Graves, 1916. John Thomas, 1925. Cora Botts, 1935. Sarah Jane Green, 1928. William H. Brown, 1921. Emma Gray, 1927. Lucy Harper, 1929. George Jackson. 1917. After emancipation and during the Reconstruction era, large plantations could not be sustained without the muscle and intelligence of slave labor. Wealthy white owners began selling off these less desirable sections of their property, land that was marshy, hilly, prone to flooding from nearby springs, or wooded and unfit for farming. But these now free blacks were resourceful, and when land ownership changed, these African Americans took these small plots and worked the land to produce yields that would feed their families. According to Amy Rispin, a local historian with the Little Falls Watershed Alliance, quote, year after year, black families began appearing in the census, ultimately building a whole vibrant community that lasted about a hundred years. Mr. Harvey Matthews grew up on River Road, and if you remember, was with Marcia the night she learned about the existence of the cemetery. Today he's in his 70s and is a Macedonia Baptist church elder. As a child in the 1950s, he remembers playing hide-and-seek with his friends in that cemetery among the flat rocks that were dug up from the creek bed, chiseled as gravestones, and placed in memory of those who were laid to rest. Bethesda was segregated and the Matthews owned a small farm with chickens and horses that stood where the Whole Foods is now. The trade of young Harvey's dad was training hunting dogs for the white people who lived nearby. Harvey remembers every house having its own garden and as he says, if you lived on River Road, you knew every bean that came out of the ground because that's what we ate. 33 other black families lived along River Road in that African and African-American community, and with a determination to be self-sufficient with supportive priorities, like their own schools and institutions, it thrived for over 60 years. There was one thing that we were trying to understand. Who is White's Tabernacle in all of this? Mm. White's Tabernacle number 37 of the Sun's and daughters, brothers and sisters of Moses, which is where the cemetery gets its name from, Moses African Cemetery, was a benevolent society uh, that was established, I think, around 1920, around 1920s, 1930s, uh, of black people who were determined um, to create community. And community to to them meant, you know, we are going to provide... um, medical care for our community. We are going to provide the funds to to bury our community with dignity and purpose. We are going to start 
schools uh, where we educate our children. So it was a benevolent society that was all about self-determination and about Africans in this country or African-Americans, but Africans in this country being uh, self-sufficient and creating the kind of institutions that would support um, African-Americans being successful um, either through business or education or bearing, you know, their, their loved ones with dignity. In 1911, the White's Tabernacle purchased the land where Moses African Cemetery is. But starting in the 1950s, one mechanism after another was used to push black families out. Despite their best efforts, the existence of this once thriving community was gone. So in 1963, they devised what was called the plan. And the plan was to get rid of every black family in this area. And so you have the Chevy Chase Land Company in collusion with the Maryland Parks and Planning Office. This plan was to make the Negroes scatter. And we think that what was really going on is that the businessmen had a relationship with the local KKK group. And we do have testimonies like with Mr. Harvey Matthews where a group of white men would come to their house, pull the father out of the house that night, take him away. The family didn't know where he uh, had gone. And then these men would say whatever they said, do whatever they did to him. He would eventually put his mark on a sheet of paper. And then they would take him back home. And a week later, these same white men would come back and say, do you see your mark on this paper? You have sold your land to us, um, and you are to get out. You are to leave this dwelling immediately. And that was how a lot of the land was lost. Today, massive construction equipment is digging up this piece of hollowed ground. They're constructing a self-storage facility on top of it. Over the last several weeks, dozens of people have come out in protest of the desecration. Press conferences and live stream discussions fill their social media as the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition works to make the public aware of these social injustices and call for a halt to construction. Jeffrey Slavin, the mayor of the small town of Somerset, which borders Bethesda, is one of Moses African Cemeteries and Marsha Adebayo's local allies and he's joined the movement to stop the desecration. He's looking for land studies, and he's looking for answers. So I've been in office for 18 years now, and our town has been described in the Washington Post as a little oasis, because it's this um, tiny little municipality of around 1,200 people that is um, just abuts the, the, the D.C. line. Did you know, Marsha, prior to joining the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition? I, I, didn't, I didn't know her personally, but I knew of her reputation and her success as a whistleblower. Marsha is a brilliant activist strategist. I, I think so highly of her. And so, and I'm relying on her and her leadership. I'm just a soldier. I'm her soldier. I mean, I might be a mayor and everything, but in this particular instance, I'm her soldier. The history that's taught in school is not really American history. It's white privilege history. 
Montgomery County was segregated and black people lived in segregated little neighborhoods, some of them still some of which still exist now in our county. And so so where there's where this church is was a little black neighborhood. I, I wanted to get involved because you know they're part of our community. Mayor Slavin didn't hold back his outrage in describing the actions of his fellow civil servants. The Housing Opportunities Commission acquired this property after the damage had been done by previous owners when they when they were building a building and discovered bones and and instead of going to doing what they were supposed to do, go to the police and what have you, apparently they they just disposed of the bones, which is a crime. It's been it's been made known to a landlord that happens to be conveniently the housing authority that uh, there there was a cemetery under that land and that there still might be bones there. Or if the bones aren't there, then what what happened to them? And 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 still even if the bones aren't there for some reason because of some illegal action, what can we do to honor the people that were buried there? These people that were buried there that contributed so much to our quality of life today. And, and see, it's not unique to Montgomery County. There were, there were black cemeteries all over the place that have been you know, treated the same way. And what is the response when these questions are being, clearly these were the questions that you were asking the... the they, they, no one is showing leadership in trying to address the concerns of the coalition. They're, they're, they're just uh, putting roadblocks in the way. But in I mean, order that, to that, do that, you have to stop everything and then start... They, they don't want to they don't wanna do, do that. Somebody doesn't want to do that. It doesn't make any sense to me. The, re- the response doesn't make any sense to me in from the Housing Opportunities Commission or from the from the county government. I've been criti- I was criticized because you know I'm I'm really a member of the establishment. You know I'm not worried about my next you know higher up political position. So I I just do what I think is right now. The most important thing is that. The gifts and the contributions that these individuals made need to be remembered and honored, and young people need to know about it so that they can appreciate it and um, steer their lives in the same way. The stories of these African descendants, the enslaved people who were stolen from their homes in West Africa and brought to colonial America, are an important piece of American history. Arguably, the United States was built on the back of slavery and racism. The first ship arrived on colonial soil 370 years ago. Slavery was legal in this country for 246 years. By the Civil War in 1860, there were nearly 4 million slaves, and efforts to strip them of their land and their liberty continued well after emancipation. Historical markers and designations are critical. Telling the stories of the men, women, and children who rest in this cemetery and amplify their voices are small but important pieces of the puzzle. Without them, history is lost. 
I'm, I'm horrified every day, to be honest with you. And there are days when I just cannot read anymore because this is history that's obviously not taught in Montgomery County schools. This is history that we were lied about, that Montgomery County has spent an enormous amount of time, energy, and money hiding from um, the public here in Montgomery County in Maryland. And what we have been trying to preach, I think, to to the powers that be is how powerful truth is. Um, you know, and and the liberation that comes with telling the truth. And and and, and these politicians are so busy um, trying to suck up to developers um, because they understand that if our community is able to shut this down, other communities might have the bright idea that maybe I can save my family's burial plot. You know, maybe there's a there's a, a there's land that's important cultural properties to my family that if this community is able to 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 sustain a battle to protect this this enormously important and rich history, that perhaps I can do it too. And so, you know, we have a county executive who ran on a progressive platform um, who now has gone over to the other side, to the side of the developers. Uh, his name is Mark Elridge, and he's fighting us with everything in his power to stop us from telling this story and to make sure the developer is able to build um, the storage company on top of our ancestors. So we're fighting him. We're fighting the county council. We're fighting the developers. Um, but we believe that truth will prevail. As a postscript to this episode, we'd like to provide information that was made available to us just hours after our initial release. We've since learned that the Macedonia Baptist Church is not the only descendant community of the African Moses Cemetery. It's part of a more dispersed descendant community that has ties to White's Tabernacle 39. There is extensive historical and bioarchaeological evidence for the mistreatment and murder of enslaved Africans and well-documented lynchings in Montgomery County, but no evidence of mass burials in the antebellum South. That was a hallmark of later post-Civil War violence. And there's ample data on slave breeding, sexual violence, and rape of enslaved women. And in her book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, author Deirdre Cooper Owens describes in detail the horrifying medical experiments by early physicians on slave women, almost always with the goal to enhance reproductive success. And according to the Washington and Lee Journal of Civil Rights and Social Justice, sex with girls as young as 12 was not frowned upon as long as it resulted in a birth, but we could not find any reference to the term priming. It should also be clarified that the plan, as described by Dr. Coleman Adebayo, is a theory found in black communities throughout North America in describing the well-documented collaborated displacement of blacks by predominantly white real estate speculators and government officials. For many black Washingtonians, the concept is familiar and credible. 
Since this story first aired two years ago, the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition has won an injunction halting the sale of the parking lot under which they believe is the African-American gravesite. Rather than wait for a hearing, the developer walked away from the purchase. The BACC is now fighting for ownership of the area to build a proper memorial for those buried below. Dr. Martin Luther King once reminded us that we are all complicit when we tolerate injustice. It's not enough to say it'll get better by and by. Each of us has a moral obligation to stand up, to speak out, and speak up. When you see something that's not right, you have to say something. You have to do something. Democracy is not a state. It's an act. And each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community, a nation and a world society at peace with itself. We can do more by learning about historically marginalized communities, both past and present. The best way we can help is to work as a strong ally. We can start by visiting websites or museums dedicated to the African-American experience, research or volunteer at cemetery preservation groups near our homes, or help communities by cleaning up neglected graveyards. In Congressman John Lewis's final essay, he wrote, quote, Ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. May they rise. I don't want to go to bed like this. I just need that good night kiss from my love. That's you. Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with Hum Productions. Our web address is hum, that's H-U-M-M, productions.com. Financial support for the show is provided by JLB Images and listeners like you who support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guests, Dr. Marsha Coleman-Edabayo and Mayor Jeffrey Slavin. You can find updates about the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition on their Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. Special thanks to B.E. Farrell for sharing his song, Weary World Blues, for this episode. There's a stirring in my heart Always butter and a hand on my heart Keeps it rustled away A link to his website can be found on our show notes, and his music is available on all streaming platforms. And thank you to Michigan folk artist Libby DeCamp for introducing us to this story through a post on her Instagram account. And our team, Christine Murdoch, senior producer and editor, James Nash, director of operations, Jack Bechtold, production director, Sound engineering by Matt Wheeler and Andy Shoemaker. Voiceover and narration by Joel Wasserman and Christian Hertow. Music curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative. Richard Cassis of Spark Inc. for digital artwork and branding. Andrew Sachs for our original music. 
And I'm Brooke Bechtold, head writer, executive producer, and host. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We would love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think would be great to have on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary episode. Everyone has a story. Share.